Good morning. Good to see you guys. I want to read a short psalm that's not uh, on the screen for you this morning. Psalm 48, 14 says, This God will be our God forever and ever. He will be our guide to the very end. How is God being your guide right now? We sometimes want God just to tell us what to do. Every once in a while he does. We want him just to lay it out there for us. Much of the time he guides us. Instead, God's given us his word and his spirit. He's given us Christ. He's given us the church to help guide us. Not just guide us, honestly, just to help us grow up. He will be our guide to the very end, the psalm says. How's he guiding you? How's he guiding your life right now? Next Sunday, we're having a common Sunday. Common Sundays are days in which we hear from each other. We wanted to have another one before the year ended. Um, You may want to think about sharing how God is being your guide. Um, Next Sunday, you'll be invited to do that. We've been on this journey called Exodus, Journey to Freedom for the last several months. And the point of, we've been like trekking with a people, an ancient people of God through a desert. They've escaped slavery, Egypt, and they've been journeying together through a desert to where they're not sure where. But God's been guiding them. Sometimes they've been going along with his guidance. Sometimes they resist it. But he's been guiding them nonetheless. The point of the series of trekking with his people is not just to learn some ancient history. The point is to find ourselves in their story. To find ways and places where we discover more about God and his activity in our own lives. Both the times where we're willfully going along with them and the times that we discover resistance in our own hearts to his leadership in our lives. He will be our God to the very end. He'll be our guide. Before we get into totally today's message, I want to take a few minutes to kind of tell, tell you a little bit about how God's been guiding us as a community uh, recently. So most, many of you know, if you're new, this will be new to you, but uh, several weeks ago, I don't know now, six or seven weeks ago, I'd guess that we, we, we learned that we're going to, our time here at Doubletree is going to be ending. My thing is shaking because I'm on a wire, so excuse me for a minute, it's driving me crazy. There, that's better. It's not better. We'll fix it. <laughs> fix it next week. I'll just live with it today. Uh-oh. So we, we, we got... Yeah. Oh. Give it up for Ben, man. 
initiative. Good try. Um, so we're going to be leaving here in January on Sundays. And so we, we began a search for where God wants us to be next. The week after uh, we, we got word from Doubletree that uh, the rent was going way up, we got a call. There, there's a man uh, lives in Lawrence named Doug. Doug's wife is affiliated kind of as a volunteer with this organization called Foster the Cause. I'm telling you a little more of the whole story now. Um, Doug and Angie go to a, a church here, church community here in town called Bridgepoint. Doug called me and said, hey, we go to this church that is, might, might be open to you using their building. Would you call their pastor, Dennis? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll meet with them. And so we met, and we've had a lot of conversations over the last month together. And, and through this time, uh, we've, we've, we've like entertained every possibility of what using their building might look like that you can imagine. Uh, while I've been in conversation with, with them and Dennis, we've continued to look at other places too. We've, we've looked at a lot of places over the last couple months. Throughout the process, um, not, not just me and not just our elders and not just our staff, but we, we've been in conversation with our Leaders, we have about 42 people in our community who serve in like some kind of like positional leadership role in the church. As we've dialogued and prayed, uh, talked to God, talked to each other, there's been a growing awareness, uh, belief that that God is in this uh, conversation with Bridgepoint Church, um, that that God is guiding us in that direction. So this week. We, we kind of made the decision that we're going to be moving into their building in January. Um, we will begin renting from them. We, we explored different options other than, than renting, but we felt like let's date first before we get married and <laughs> see how that goes. So we'll begin renting from them the first Sunday in January. We'll be there, not here. Um, it's changed. It's going to be a change for us. How do, you, how do you feel about change? Do you like change? One thing I've learned about change, I love change when it's my idea. <laughs> when someone else's, eh, maybe. Not so much sometimes. Your perspective may be, uh, most of you are not hearing this for the first time completely. Some of you are, if you're new. You may think it's, it's not a big deal, it's just a building the church is about people, after all, to which I would say, kind of. Uh, the church is actually about a people and their God, uh, a people who are often scattered, and then a people who, who gather. And you know what? When they gather, it's in a place. That would make sense, wouldn't it? So, we'll have a new place. Um... You can respond to this relocation, displacement, exodus, whatever you want to call it, in a number of ways. You can say, it's not a big deal, I'll just go to a different place on Sunday morning, and nothing wrong with that. I'd say, if, if, you know, if that's kind of how it, it plays on you, then cool. Um, for you, for some of you, it may feel like a bigger deal. Some of you may not be that crazy about it. 
I don't want to drive to South Louisiana Street on Sunday morning, or I don't like the shape of that building. That's, that was my first reaction uh, when I drove by it. It looked a little bit like Noah's Ark to me. I was like, I'm not sure how I feel about this. I encourage you to engage the move, change. Some, some, some of us love change. We kind of thrive in it. We thrive in transition. Some of it is it's terrible. We don't enjoy it. Um, what I really want to encourage you to is engage it as a part of this community. We don't really know yet how long we'll be there. We may be there at least six months. We think we'll be there at least that long. We may be there a long time. Um, you might bury me in the back of that church one day. I don't know. Uh, ask the ancient people, the people we're trekking with, about place. Ask them about Egypt and the Red Sea and Meribah and Sinai. The desert, Mount Sinai, the Jordan River. Ask them if place is important to them. They would say, we have stories about those places. That's where God met us. That's where we gathered with Him. So I want to invite you to do more, to see it as more than just we're going to show up at a different place. It may feel like that initially. Probably will. I really want to do something deeper, though. I want to invite you into a journey uh, with us, a new place. Experience it. We'll start there on January 5th. That'll be your first time. Um, we might do Christmas Eve there for those of you who are in town, the three of you who are in town over Christmas break. <laughs> There'll be some opportunities to help in the transition. You may, have, you may be able to help with that. You may not. That's okay if you're not in town or can't because whatever reason. But if you can, that'd really introduce you to the place. We'll, we'll keep, you know, letting you know about that. Bridgepoint, the, the community that's there, the, I'm not really sure how many there are, the 30 or 40 or so that gathers in that building. They've been incredibly kind to us. Um, in, in fact, I've been learning from them about generosity. They're moving their worship time so we can do our worship time. We're going to have to go a little bit later, probably 1045. Uh, they're going to not meet in their own sanctuary. They're going to meet in their cafe so we can meet and have kind of full use of the sanctuary. You know, we will come in as a guest. We'll be a guest of theirs. Our commitment all along, our leadership, uh, has been to do this in a way that would really honor them. Um, there's been a couple options that were posed that we weren't necessarily completely close to it, but it, we couldn't figure out how to do it in a way that would be honoring to them. So we said no to that. That's how God has guided us. Because uh, we don't want to come in there and just like consume their home. We want to say yes to their invitation. To share it with them. So our last time here will be December 22nd. We've got five more Sundays here. Uh, we'll have a common Sunday next Sunday. Uh, in December, we're going to do a Christmas series, Advent series called A Son is Given. Uh, it'll be out of the ninth chapter of Isaiah. 
Uh, the last Sunday in, of the year, which is the 29th, we're gonna, we'll do house church, which we often do. Uh, for those who are here, we'll, we'll gather in four or five or six different homes that morning. We'll have brunch or lunch or something together. So that, that's kind of what's coming the next several weeks. If you have questions about the move or struggles, feel free to ask. Um, we, we, no secrets in this. I've told you, just about told you about everything I know. Uh, that's most of the story. But we invite your questions, and um, we look forward to it. While we won't be on a regular basis, at least to start worshiping with the Bridgepoint community, there will be opportunities to be with them uh, from time to time. They're mostly an aging community, older community, not, not exclusively. Um, they actually have quite a bit of racial diversity in the community too. So we're, we're kind of excited about both of those things. Um, we'll try to have, you know, have opportunities to have meals with them and that kind of stuff as we move forward. We don't know exactly what that looks like. We might do Christmas Eve there. We don't know yet. We know we're not doing it here. We might do it there. All right, let's flip. Let me, let me pray and ask God to speak through our message this morning. You've sang a message. I just like preached an announcement, but now you're, we're not done yet. Now you've got to listen to me a little longer. God, we do want to pause and kind of collectively give, a, give you this move. Uh, Lord, we've already walked with you thus far. And we don't know how it will change us. We don't really know if it will change us. But we suspect it probably will in some ways. We know that it's not about a building. It's not about a piece of dirt. But we know you meet us in place. And so we don't want to be naive about that. Lord, we look forward to to it even though it's going to mean change. It's going to be in a different place in our town. So we just bring all that before you, trusting that you know what to do with all that a whole lot more than we do. And we do say thank you for being so generous to us and providing a place. We are grateful. Thank you for the people of Bridgepoint, for Dennis, their pastor, as well as the people in the community who have opened their arms to us. We're very grateful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been traveling with the people. We already said that. We are a people. We are a spiritual family. We're seeking to live the life of Jesus together. That's our quest. If you're new here, that's about the best way I know how to describe who we are. We're seeking to live out the life of Jesus together. As we've been traveling with this ancient people across the desert, we found ourselves at the foot of a desert mountain, Sinai. Moses has ascended the mountain, and he's talking to God. The rest of the community is down at the bottom. God, well, I should say God is talking with Moses. Best we can tell, it looks like a one-way conversation going on on top of the mountain. God's speaking, and Moses is listening. And God starts off with these words that are recorded um, in the 20th chapter of Exodus. God says, I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of Egypt, 
out of the land of slavery. God begins with a statement about what He's done for them. Before He's going to ask anything from them, He reminds and recounts what He did. They are His people. He has delivered them. He is their God. They have been rescued by Him. He loves them. This is their identity. It's not slaves. It is a beloved people. That's really important because this is also our identity. We're beloved people. Even when we don't feel very lovable. Anybody ever feel unlovable? Yeah. Our identity is a beloved people before it's anything else. So God is starting with who He is and who they are. And then He's going to talk to Moses about His expectations from His people. And as you know, if you've been around, what He's saying has become known as the Ten Commandments. We've been looking at them for a number of weeks, Ten Commandments. Today we're going to try, at least for now, close the loop on them. I want us to keep in mind the historical context of these commandments as we wrap them up. This is a big group of people at the bottom of the mountain. Hundreds of thousands of people. This isn't like Rock Hills hanging out at the bottom of the mountain. This is a crowd. They've never known anything till the last few weeks of anything other than slavery. That has been their identity. But they've now been rescued and they're now migrating together as a big group in the desert. And they're following the lead of a man who's got a very questionable resume. Moses. And so God, it makes sense that at this point, God's going to communicate expectations. Can you imagine if he didn't? 400 people, several weeks in, trekking through the Egyptian desert with no expectations, with no law, with no principles, no standards of behavior. This has got to get put into play pretty quickly. In fact, while Moses, is, if you know the story, while Moses is up there on the mountain talking to God about we're your people and I'm your God and here's these cool Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, it's getting dang janky at the bottom of the mountain. People are starting to go off the rails while this conversation is going on. So the Ten Commandments are given, they're showing up at just the right time. And they're actually amazing. God's going to talk in the context of, I am your God and you are my people. So he's going to say, hey, I rescued you. There is no other God but me for you. Don't make false gods. Remember what I have done for you. Worship the true God. The one who saw you in your condition. The one who heard your cries. The one who has delivered you in love. Honor and worship me. Honor my great name. Give me my rightful place in your life. Remember me. Learn to rest in my provision for your life. 
you're my beloved community. So God begins, we, we, we look at them as laws. Uh-uh. They're, they're affectionate language. They're much more than laws. And God isn't just addressing Moses about them and him. He's also recently has gotten into them and them. How they're to live, not just with God, but with one another as they live under God. How they are to be. And God has started with family. Honor your parents. Respect the integrity and the sanctity of this beautiful thing called family. This core relational unit of life that has been so beat up. Honor life itself, he says. Do not murder. God gives life. Don't take it. Respect it. What I, what I hope that you, you will see this morning is that these commandments, these laws, they are really, really good. They are given, they were given for this people's well-being. They're flourishing. They are given for our well-being. They are much, much more than laws. They are much, much more than a checklist to keep God off our back. If you see them that way, you're, you're missing them. You're not seeing them as an affectionate language. They're good and they're helpful and they're actually beautiful. If the, when they become laws to us, just commandments to like heartlessly obey, they become lifeless. They become oppressive. They become something outside of God's vision for His people. See, living in obedience, obedience to God, was never designed to be a miserable existence. Keeping God's law believe it or not, is always intended to be done with joy and contentment and peace. It's always been intended that's done in the context of a trustful, beloved relationship, even to the point of friendship with God. And that's how Jesus lived, in friendship. That's how he thought about them. See, People were getting the idea when Jesus came along that he was going to do away with them. They were going to do away with, he was going to do away with the law. Why would they think that? It's because Jesus was actually happy. He, he, He like lived as a free person. Like religion to Jesus wasn't this like yoke on his back that, that was like bearing down on him. There was a joy about him. There was an open-handedness. He lived with this compelling way of freedom. His life and his teaching, it was, it was actually life-giving to people, not taking. So people were getting the idea of like, he's doing away with God's commandments, that way of obedience. And Jesus spoke into that. He, he wanted to clear that misconception up. He said this, Don't think that way. I've not come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfill it. Because for Jesus, keeping the law wasn't a code. It wasn't a heartless, lifeless set of rules. See, Jesus routinely, and can I say it, easily kept the law. He 
It was who he was. And it wasn't because he was wearing the God Superman cape so much. You may say, that was easy for him. What about the rest of us saps down here? He routinely and easily kept the law because he was in relational friendship with his father. I'm not saying it was always easy at every point. Don't hear me say that. I'm just saying it was very possible for him to walk in it in freedom and fulfillment. So on one occasion in Jesus' life, this lawyer comes up to him and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit this kind of life that I'm seeing in you? Eternal life. So Jesus poses the question back like he frequently does. He says, well, what is written in the law? Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with it. How do you read it? He said, here's how I read it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, with all your mind. And he said, and also love your neighbor as yourself. That's how I read it. And Jesus said, do that. Do that. Because that's what Jesus did. That's how he did it. That's how he kept the law. It was driven by love. For his father. For his neighbor. I hope this makes sense to you. That's his vision of how we keep law. He didn't come to do away with it. So we're going to close the loop on these commandments. In the next 15 minutes, we're going to do the last four. Um, So you might want to buckle your seatbelts. Number seven is thou shalt not commit adultery. God's addressing the sanctity of the home here. This basic institution of human existence. It's not government. Government has a really important place in society. It exists for the common good of all. But the home is intended to be the place for entering into life. For being raised up into our life, for training, for flourishing in life. When the home is stable and healthy, not perfect, none of us got that, but when the home is stable and healthy, the person has a much better chance of being stable and healthy. Now, it doesn't mean that if you came out of an unstable and healthy home, you have no chance. That might be the case were it not for relationship with God, and being a community of relatively healthy people, but you have a better chance. Part of our vision here is to help with homes who are struggling, to like help be part of the solution with this institution called the family that's just had the snot beat out of it. We want to be a help with that. Many of you are now. Many of you are taking in those who haven't known healthy unstable home. And I applaud you for it and I hope we do it in increasing measure as God guides us. Now the home isn't the most enduring, most important relationship in life. Life with God is. Jesus says we're to seek that one first. But the home is really a primary place. It's not everything, but it's important. So God's vision for the home is it's a place of safety, of love and intimacy, and that's what God's addressing. Love and intimacy and safety. This commandment protects the sanctity of that 
So to commit adultery strikes back a great wound on that God-intended vision for the home. When adultery happens, people who've been created in God's image, people who are treasured by God, are rejected. That's what adultery does. That's its effect. They're misused due to the selfishness of a marriage partner. A partner who breaks his or her promise to commit adultery is a corruption of the design and the purpose of the body. This thing here. Which is an important part of the self. Your body is important to you. It's not everything. It's important. The body is the dwelling place of God in the person. 1 Corinthians 6 says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, a temple is a dwelling place. Whom you've received from God, the Spirit. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God in your body. Adultery is a grievous sin against the body. Marriage and God. To commit adultery is by nature a great deception. Primarily, it's a self-deception. As a pastor, I've had the misfortune of, of being in conversation with people through decades who have given into this. It's really difficult. One of the commonalities I've seen is the deception. Just being frank with you. Job 24.15 says, The eye of the adulterer watches for dusk. He thinks, no one will see me. And he keeps his face concealed. Everyone except the person deceived by it. When we hear of adultery, there's this righteous anger, isn't there? Kind of raises. Because we, we intuitively know the injustice of it. And the gravity of it. We feel it. It's an awful wrong that violates the sanctity of the person. The union of a husband and wife. Jesus addressed the wrong of adultery. As, as, he, as he did so masterfully, so many things, He went to the root of it. Here's what He said. You've heard it said, uh, back there in Exodus 20, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, has already committed adultery with her in, her in his heart. Ouch. He was speaking to multitudes of men who were in this check-the-box approach to the law. He thought they were in the clear because they weren't engaged in the physical act of adultery. Jesus just got real personal, didn't he? Jesus didn't see the prohibition against adultery as that kind of check-the-box matter. That's not how he thought about it. He was seeing God's vision. He was addressing this selfish lust that drives adultery. Looking at another person with lust, he understood, is this way of possessing them for ourselves, using them for our own satisfaction. The sin of lust is a violation that when we look at someone to possess them, to use them, rather than to treasure and respect the dignity of one made in the image of God. 
This is a tough one because God's created us with this tremendous capacity for passion, hasn't he? For physical passion, sexual passion. You know that passion is part of what it means to bear the image of God? God is a passionate God. He's not Mr. Spock up in heaven running a computer. His vision and calling on your life is not to make you put your passion to death. Don't think that. His vision and passion, vision for your life is that you put the perversion of your passion to death. The sickness that's in it. It's in all of us. God wants to do a work for every one of us right here in this domain. Passion. Our sexuality. He wants us to enter His way, whether you're married or unmarried. And learn to harness and channel and control our passion in such a way that He is gloried and our life is on display in a way that is is pure and right. So if you're unmarried, this challenge from Christ can be really, really hard. To put off lust and be sexually pure can feel overwhelming. It can even feel honestly unfair at times. Those of you who are married may know that feeling. This isn't fair. I want to say to you guys, God has not forgotten you. He's called you to purity though. And He wants you to trust Him with this. You can trust Him with this calling to be pure. He will strengthen you and give you the heart and will to be pure. And you can come to experience His grace right in the middle of it. If you're married, God's call to purity is also upon your life. Sexual purity. It comes within the expression of sexuality within your commitment of marriage where two become one flesh. To introduce another party into that two becoming one flesh is a tragedy of epic proportions to those who feel the hurt from it. Woundedness and hurt. And if left unrepented of, and this has been my experience in walking with people, it will lead to personal ruin. I've seen it over and over. Proverbs 25 says, like a city whose walls are broken down is a person that lacks self-control. The beauty of sexual life comes neither by harsh, harsh repression or by unlimited expression, but by discipline under the hand of God. Self-control. Healthy discipline in the life of the Jesus follower will bring freedom to you. Not repression. Sometimes it may feel like repression in the journey. It does. Alright, I'm not going to spend as long as I did on that one on the other three. This adultery thing is important to God. The next one is you shall not steal. This commandment addresses a right, person's right to property which stems from our mandate from God to exercise dominion over the earth. You know what? You don't own anything. I'm sorry. That car, that house, that bank account, you don't own it. You have been given dominion over it. You're a steward of it. Anything you think you own can be taken from you. It's like that. God is the owner of everything, but He has given us dominion. We're not owners, we're stewards. 
We have property, things, stuff we've been given that we have say over and we have responsibility with. We've been given dominion over it. This commandment, you shall not steal, says do not reach out and take from another what God has given them dominion over. It's pretty much that simple. Stealing robs people of the fruit of their own labor. Stealing robs someone of her God-given right to care for what she's been made responsible for. Stealing robs a person of bearing responsibility in the community. When you steal from someone, you've taken away their freedom to exercise generosity with that commodity. Stealing is ultimately not about the stuff that's taken. It's about the violation of dominion given by God. So God says, don't do that. Stealing is sometimes an indicator of failure to trust God. Sometimes it's a product of laziness. Now let's be honest, even though maybe you've never stolen anything. I wish I could say that. Um, I stole all kinds of stuff when I was a kid. Um, The stealing is closer to most of us than we would care to admit. Get in a situation where deprivation is there of basic things like food and water. It would lead many of us to steal. And that reality should strike a chord, I think, of compassion in us. For those who find themselves in that kind of fate... It doesn't mean they're right to steal because they're hungry. I'm not saying that. It does mean we can have empathy and move towards people who have lack. And actually try to be a help to them rather than a judgment of them. uh, Ephesians 4.28, it addresses this issue of kind of personal responsibility and of assisting others. It says this, anyone who has been stealing should stop it, still no longer, but should work doing something useful with their own hands. Why? So that they may have something to share with those in need. There's this beautiful picture of healthy community in the Old Testament. I love this passage. It's in Deuteronomy. It says, uh, when you enter your neighbor's garden or vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want, but don't put any in your pocket. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick the kernels with your hands, but don't put the sickle to the grain. Now God's not saying, modern day application is go pick your neighbor's tomatoes without asking. But there may be application if your neighbor's eating your tomatoes, go ahead and let them eat them. It's okay. Jesus addresses the Spirit, give to the one who asks of you. Do not turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. See, the citizens of God's kingdom learn the way of giving, not taking. And occasionally that even means giving up our rights. Not always, but sometimes. The ninth commandment is you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. This commandment is about falsehood, untruth, specifically done in such a way that harms somebody else. Harms your neighbor, and this is wrong. For really the same reason as the others. 
It violates their dignity. Now this isn't just about telling lies or white lies. It could come in many forms. One, false testimony against your neighbor may start with false assumptions about them. Making assumptions. Jumping to conclusions. Seeing someone do something and say, I know why they did that. That was selfish. That was arrogant. Maybe you don't know why they did that. Maybe there's a whole lot more going on than letting you know. I've committed this many times. It's an arrogant way to think that you know what they're thinking or feeling. That's what it, part of where bearing false witness starts. It could be judging or condemning another, judging their motives. Jesus said, you want to get in the business of judging people? Then you're going to get in the business of being judged. He doesn't recommend that. Gossip. Telling the truth. Gossip is telling the truth about someone with the intent to harm them. That's bearing false witness. Slander. Telling a lie about someone with the intent to harm them. Or patronizing is simply not taking someone seriously. In the South, we call that, well, bless his heart. All these ways are false witness and they take advantage of the people we're speaking about. Can you imagine society without these things? That's not talking about each other with the intent to harm. Imagine how beautiful it would be if that just got eliminated from culture. Ephesians 4.29 says, Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit them. That's really a good thing, isn't it? To speak in such a way that builds others up. And if we have something hard to say about them, that we would say it to them. Finally, you shall not covet This commandment is in a bit of a different nature than the others. Coveting goes directly to the heart, to the inwardness of our being. It's pretty invisible. But coveting gets the last word. The first commandment is priority. No other gods before me. But the advantage of going last, I don't know if you've figured this out, is you get the last word. Coveting gets the last word. The essence of coveting is, again, to possess rather than to serve. It implies at a deep, often undetectable level, ownership and possession rather than stewardship. Coveting is a secret, sometimes dark desire to own that which God has entrusted to another. You may not be stealing it, But in your heart, you're like committing all kinds of injury to that person. They don't deserve that. I worked harder for what I don't have than they did for what they do have. Covening endangers our soul. It endangers precious things in our soul. And it's very degrading to us and others when we do it. Jesus said a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
And then he told a story about a man whose coven he destroyed him. He said this man who was rich, had a farm, it yielded an abundant harvest. So he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. I know what I'll do. I'll big, build more barns, bigger ones, better ones. And then I'll take all my surplus and I'll say to myself, eat and drink and party. And God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. And who will get what you've prepared for yourself? And then Jesus gives this commentary to the story. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves and is not rich toward God. I love that phrase, rich toward God. There's an affection there, isn't there? Rich towards God. That God will serve you well and take care through your life of you. Rich toward God is the psalmist saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. That's his confession. Rich towards God is the Apostle Paul saying, I've learned the secret of being content, whether I have a lot or a little, whether I'm well fed or I'm hungry. That's his confidence. It's his conviction when he says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Whether I have the resources or God's supplying them in real time as I go along. We don't have to covet. It is not required. We can learn and train to not covet and be rich towards God. Let me give a couple parting shots and then I'll stop. I want you to note the precision in the commandments. They're not ambiguous. These are not ways to be nicer and sweeter people. Now, we're all about nice and sweet. But that's really not what it's about. These aren't arbitrary rules that God concocted to keep us in line. They describe internal conditions. A righteousness of the heart that Jesus talked about. They deal with our character. Who we're becoming. Character being formed by God. They give us a look into the issues and things that God really cares about. Things like life and truth, and purity, and respect, and justice, and dignity, commitment, and loyalty. The good commandments describe what a good person looks like. You would like it if your neighbor kept the Ten Commandments. You'd be really glad about that. The desire of our hearts is to be a really good person. Not just people that appear good or pretend to be good, who are just really religious, but has this righteousness of the heart that comes out of being in relationship with God. That's the purpose of the law, to show us what goodness looks like. Righteousness, what Christ is, what Christ gives us when we live in His care. What He forms in us in increasing measure over time as we walk with Him. We become, over time, people who more naturally and routinely keep the Ten Commandments. Because we're not checking the box anymore. We're living out of a well-formed heart that Jesus gives. You know what? What I just described is the Gospel. 
It's good news that goodness is available for us. True goodness that's only found in Christ and that is available to each of you. To each of us. Christ, He says, Behold, I stand at your heart's door and I'm knocking. If you open the door and let me in, I'll come in. It's available. This goodness of the heart begins with forgiveness. When Christ comes into our life, the first thing He does is sweep clean all the disobedience and the darkness. He forgives it as if you were never bad. He makes it new. Technically, you become righteous in Him. Through Him. And then His presence in your life starts actually changing you to become more and more like Him over time and with your cooperation. See, here's the, here's the kind of tension in it. God does it, but He doesn't force it on us. He begins working our lives in really good ways. And we become people who aren't checking the boxes. Those are called legalists. We become people who are living in obedience because we're shaped in the way of Jesus. They're actually becoming more like Him. Now, we're probably not going to get there all the way. This side of heaven. And that's okay. Because grace, we burn it like jet fuel as we go along. And He's very kind with us when we don't do it well. Because He's a loving Father. And we are His beloved. This is the Gospel. I hope you know that God of that gospel because I want to tell you you're not going to find it outside of Jesus you are not going to find it. that goodness that grace I hope you find it I hope you have if you haven't get curious about that today we don't know how long we have let me pray and then we'll close in worship and a few announcements Lord, we have heard from Your Word good news today. Not a furrowed brow how we can pretend to be righteous, but good news of Jesus who has given His life so that we might know His life. And who walks ahead of us as our guide, calling us to follow in His steps. Lord, help us. Help us do that, be that, embrace that. We're, we fall so short. I wish we didn't have to stop. I wish we could just stop singing that song of how short we stop. But God, we just want to be more. Change us. Change us like the song we're getting ready to sing. Make that be our song. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.